Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the latest installment of Rev War Revelry uh, with Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, I'm Mark Malloy, and we're here tonight, uh, actually in the middle of the anniversary of the 10 Crucial Days campaign. Uh, and we got kind of a hive mind of some of the, the best experts on the, the 10 crucial days uh, uh, that occurred from December 25th, 1776 to January 3rd, 1777. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just going to be talking about the, uh, the battles, uh, their significance. We'll discuss some of the myths and misconceptions. And uh, of course, we'll also talk about the battlefields today, what you can see there today um and uh some of the significant sites as well um but we'll go ahead and get started with some introductions uh so why don't we start off with uh larry uh larry kidder um and uh just uh introduce yourself tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, some of your research uh we got a couple authors here that have written a lot about uh this area and the, the this time period so uh, let's start off with Larry, uh, introduce yourself and uh, some of the work you've done on this time period. Okay. Uh, well, I'm Larry Kidder and I'm a retired history teacher. Um, and I've done a lot of work over the years uh, developing history courses and trying to teach courses in such a way that the students think of history as something to do, not just something to memorize. And to have students do a little research and understand uh, how we get to know the past, as well as uh, just reading what somebody thinks about the past. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with living history at the Howell Living History Farm in Hopewell Township for over the last 30 years or so. And that's really what got me involved in researching the revolution. Started researching agriculture in central New Jersey for the farm and uh, did a couple of books on that, but then um, because of a program for the farm where they wanted to do the Revolutionary War, I had to find out what was going on there. 
uh, during the revolution. And that led to my study of the Hunterdon County militia. And so what started out as back, uh, research for a weekend program at the farm wound up a book. And that book led to three others and working on a fourth now. So uh, being retired gives me the time to, to do that. And it's, it's just been a lot of fun. So I'm gonna keep at it for a while. Very good, that's great. Yeah, no, and uh, the, the book he wrote about uh, the 10 Crucial Days campaign is, is excellent. It just recently came out uh, the other year. So if you get a chance, uh, definitely look that up. Um, but uh, David, uh, why don't you uh, introduce yourself uh, to the audience and uh, you have a connection to the, uh, the site we're washing across the Delaware and our author as well. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. Sure. That's right, Mark. Um, and thank you, by the way, for uh, inviting me to participate in this. So, um, well, I've described myself in the past as a history buff who likes to write, and I'm not going to deviate from that now. So um, it's too late to claim to be anything else. So I went up to uh, Washington Crossing Historic Park on a cold February day in 2014, February 2014, about six months after I had retired from my um, job with the state and uh, learned that they were looking for tour guides. Well, they call them historical interpreters. Uh, I haven't quite figured out what the difference is between the two other than the spelling. But um, so a few months uh, later, I was certified, I think is the term they use to give tours there. And um, so I started doing that. Uh, I was volunteering for the better part of two years and then they unvolunteered me and I became a part-time member of their interpretive staff giving tours at the, this is at the, the Pennsylvania version of the two sister parks, Washington Crossing Historic Park as opposed to Washington Crossing State Park on the New Jersey side. And so I've been giving tours there uh, for the last six or seven years, which focus on the 10 crucial days uh, generally, but as you can imagine, um, we expend most of our firepower on the, um, the crossing, the Christmas night crossing and the first battle of Trenton. And um, so I've been doing that. I started, I also started giving tours a couple of years ago through the, under the auspices of the, um, for instance, Battlefield Society, which of course, um, Larry and Roger both have both been heavily involved in. So I've been doing that as well. And uh, so the three books that I've written are really an outgrowth of what I've been doing at Washington Crossing Historic Park. Uh, it's my, <laughs> yeah, Roger's holding up the, the first book in the trilogy. Um, I had started, writing uh, book reviews for the for the monthly electronic newsletter of the Friends of Washington Crossing Park. And I did that for a while and then I decided, well, I wanna write something else. So I thought, well, maybe I'll write about some quote unquote unsung Patriot heroes. And I wrote a couple of profiles for the newsletter about them. And then somebody there suggested that I try writing a book. And of course my initial reaction was with, that this individual had lost her mind, but I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. 
<laughs> so that gave rise to rescuing the revolution. And along the way, I ran into Roger, um, not literally, but um, I knew he was a literary agent and a, and a Rev War nut. And uh, I'd seen him hanging around the park. And I thought, this was after I had shown the manuscript to everybody else there. I thought, well, why not show it to him? He is a literary agent and he knows something about the period. And then I found out that he was about to start mucking around in the publishing world. And so one thing led to another and that became a, a very short book. Um, and then that led to the second book, The Road to Assenpink Creek. And I guess I have a, I don't know if you want me to talk about this now, maybe I can look later. My Assenpink Creek centric view of the 10 crucial days really had its genesis when I was working for the state in Trenton in a building that's a long stone's throw from the creek. And I had the opportunity to wander down there on my lunch hour after uh, reading David Hackett Fisher's book. And that got me to thinking about, you know, what went on there. Um, and then I guess around uh, midway through that second book, I decided, well, wouldn't it be neat to try to write a trilogy about the TCD, 10 Crucial Days. And um, so that led to the third book, John Hazlitt's World. John Hazlitt, of course, was one of the people I profiled in the first book. And I uh, decided to, to see if I could craft, you know, a, a literary effort of, of book length about someone for whom we really know very little in terms of his pre-Rev War life. Um, so that came out recently. And the other thing, I, unlike Larry, I am not writing uh, a book now. I'm just sort of, I don't even know that I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about thinking about it. And don't ask me what that means. But I am working on a, a series of blog posts on topics relating to the Revolutionary War on my website. If I can inject a shamelessly self-promotional note, DP author, that's DP as in David Price, dpauthor.com. And the blog is titled Speaking of Which. And um, well, that's about it. Very good. And uh, Roger. Well, um, so I, I wear a lot of hats. Um, I was actually a historical interpreter at Washington Crossing Historic Park uh, before David. Um, and then I became, um, I was on the board of the Princeton Battlefield Society. And another fellow uh, who both Larry and, and David know, and I launched an organization called 10crucialdays.org. 10crucialdays.org is really sort of an umbrella um, marketing uh, organization for the four sites and venues of the 10 Crucial Days. Uh, Washington Crossing Historic Park, Pennsylvania, Washington Crossing State Park, New Jersey, the old Barracks Museum in Trenton, and the Princeton Battlefield Society. Larry Kidder and I um, actually do host a series of tours uh, that are run through Washington Crossing Historic Park um, as in, uh, historical interpreters. Um, uh, as David mentioned, I am a literary agent uh, but because of David, um, I am also a publisher. As he mentioned, I, um, uh, when he mentioned that he was going to write a book, 
it was just about the same time that I said, well, I'm, I'm actually starting an imprint. So both David and Larry have um, been very patient with me as I've learned how to um, go from being just a literary agent and a sales and marketing guy to a, a publisher. And I have since published three of David's books and three of Larry's books and um, many other books uh, through my imprint, knoxpress.com. Um, and of any of you, you know, you're all, we're all Rev War buffs here. We all, Knox Press obviously comes from Henry Knox. So, um, but on top of that, um, I'm president of the New Jersey, uh, of the Princeton chapter of the New Jersey Society, the Sons of the American Revolution. Um, I am on the, I'm also a member of the Delaware and the Vermont societies. I'm um, a member of the uh, education and the 250 committees for the SAR. I'm a member of the Sons, Sons of the Revolution, which is a different organization. I'm an uh, executive producer of a musical called The Crossing in the Ten Crucial Days, of which Larry is also the historical advisor for that musical. And um, like David and, and Larry, I'm also a member of another other, uh, a number of other historic organizations, including uh, the Congress of American Revolutionary War Roundtable. So it's a regular communication of, um, of uh, the, all of the roundtables that um, are up and down the East Coast. Um, so, you know, as David mentioned earlier, we're all a bunch of Rev War geeks um, involved one way or the other. So there you go. Long, long introductions for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, like I said, I think it's good to you know, you guys obviously have a lot of history, a lot of uh, information that you garnered over the years uh, being at these sites where, where this stuff happened. Yeah. And yeah, and like I said, I, I think it's great having uh, other authors who have written about these these time periods that were, uh, you know, obviously, and I think the name 10 Crucial Days is an apt description of the campaign because of its uh, significance and importance in the, the founding of the country. If Mark, if I could, um, ten crucial days is a term that we sort of use collectively for actually two campaigns. The um, the United States Army recognizes the Trenton campaign and the Princeton campaign. It's actually two. They they actually refer to them as two separate campaigns. We look at them as one campaign. Um, it, they are all intertwined. I mean, it, 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 there were 10 crucial days where you had two, you know, these two campaigns were really sort of merged together. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be sort of looking at how uh, without one, the other couldn't have really succeeded. So. No, I think that's, that's a very good description because yeah, there is a there is a break in between in between the two two separate actions, uh, uh, so to speak, when when Washington goes back on the other side of the, the Delaware. But let's uh, uh, for our audience, let's let's talk first about the actual crossing of the Delaware. Uh, as you can see, I got the, the image up behind me. I feel like most people think of this, uh, you know, when they hear about you know. They know anything about the 10 crucial days. The one thing they're probably familiar with is the crossing of the Delaware. Uh, and it's mostly because of the painting, I think. 
Um, and uh, I guess, you know, can we get a little, uh, I don't know, maybe Larry or David, if one of you guys want to talk a little bit about, you know, what happened there and, you know, is this painting, uh, you know, accurate of what, uh, what occurred that night? I feel like that's what most people like to talk about. <laughs> You, you could spend a half hour just talking about the painting. Um, I read somewhere that it's one of the three most celebrated works of art in the Western world, the other two being by Da Vinci, The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa. Um, and, you know, what I've told people is, I don't know whether Loitza didn't know the details or did what you know, figured he wasn't going to sweat the small stuff. Um, what makes it a great painting, I think, is and why it resonates with the public and has, you know, for generations, even more, more so than other paintings that are more technically accurate, is because Loitza did such a brilliant job of conveying the mood music. Um, I think you see it in the facial expressions of the soldiers and their physical postures really get a sense of, of what they must have been feeling at the time, their, their um, courage, uh, their determination, their, their desperation. And um, so, and the other thing that, that really resonates with me is, um, you know, notwithstanding all the, the technical defects, which, you know, we can get into if you want, but, um, is the, the symbolism or some aspects of the symbolism. For example, I particularly like the fact that he has the black gentleman in the boat next to Washington, to Washington's immediate left, who presumably is, is a marble head or, or one of the, you know, one of the men, right, one of the uh, soldiers, one of the, the uh, one of the seafaring soldiers, if you will, from the North Shore. And it was part of the, the, um, the message, I think, that Loitza was trying to send. Remember, when this painting came to the United States, it was in 1851, I believe. This was actually the second version of the painting. The first one was partially damaged and stayed behind at his studio in uh, Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, but um, this, of course, was about a decade before the Civil War broke out. And so it was at a time when slavery had become the dominant political um, issue or the dominant issue of the national political agenda. And uh, Leutze was an ardent abolitionist. And so I think this was his way of sending a message that the American Revolution was for everyone, not just for uh, white people. And of course, more generally, I believe that he was, he painted this, you know, in the, in the wake of the democratic revolutions that had broken out throughout Western Europe in the 1840s. And so he was, this was his way of trying to, um, you know, hold up the American Revolution as a, uh, as imperfect as it was from the standpoint of achieving widespread democracy um, here as, as a template for, uh, you know, freedom loving uh, people around the globe. No, yeah. I, I, um, I, when, when I give uh, tours, I always say to people, uh, this, this piece of work is the second most iconic piece of art of military, American military history. Um, and invariably everybody else will come up with what the first is, which a piece 
uh, iconic image in American military history, and, and the first being the Iwo Jima, the photograph of Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima. And this is, it's a great piece of propaganda art. I mean, essentially what Leutze was doing here is he was sending a message to his fellow countrymen who were from these disparate uh, states in Germany. Uh, he was trying to convince them that they should all join Prussia and become one Germany, which is kind of ironic because the Americans were going to attack the Hessians. But essentially that's what, that's what this is. It's a propaganda painting for his fellow countrymen saying if the if the Americans can do it we can do it too so but the whole first chapter of, of Hackett Fisher's book sort of goes into the painting in in detail it's fascinating yeah no I, I think you're absolutely right as far as it being up there yeah right next to Iwo Jima and uh and you know David was just mentioning African Americans you know taking part in this campaign uh, Larry, I think uh, you're actually doing some research on uh, African Americans who, who fought at the Battle of Trenton. Would you care to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, before I do that, I'd just like to comment on the painting and how it um, is not really uh, a good representation of the crossing itself because it omits something very important. And Roger has put behind him a more recent painting that kind of makes up for that. Uh, one of the things that we need to remember about this crossing is he not only crossed men, but he crossed artillery. And he crossed a great deal of artillery, much more than uh, one would expect from the, the number of men that he was uh, using in this campaign. And that artillery is going to play a very important role because of the weather of the battle that takes place uh, artillery was known as the foul weather weapon. And when muskets would get messed up by the moisture and the gunpowder and all of that, artillery worked better. It's also gonna slow him down a great deal to get it all across. He's gonna have to cross horses. He's gonna have to cross wagons with ammunition, all kinds of stuff. Uh, what I don't like about the paintings behind Roger right now is the artillery piece is not connected to horses. They would not have loaded it on that ferry boat and then disconnected the horses and then across the river connected the horses back up again. They would have just all gone as, as a unit. But the painting behind Roger also points out something key to the crossing. Uh, why was it done at a ferry? Why wasn't it done somewhere else on the river? For the boats that you see in the Leutze painting, those could have crossed anywhere on the river. They didn't need a, a ferry landing. They didn't need a rope across to, to guide the ferry. Uh, they didn't need to use ferry boats, uh, the, the flat barge like ferry boats. And that's the reason he chose McConkie's ferry. Uh, one of the reasons he chose is because it was a ferry and there were ferry boats available. And so the Durham boats were not even meant to go across the river. They were meant to go up and down the river and carry heavy loads, not, not people. Whereas the ferry boats were designed to carry horses, wagons, people, etc. So I think that to really understand the nature of the crossing, aside from the reasons for it and all that, but just how it was done, how it was accomplished on that stormy night in the icy water, it's important to recognize the, the two different styles of boats and the, the need to be doing this at a ferry crossing. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good good information to know. 
I, uh, we did get a, a question uh, since we have an author about Hazlitt. Uh, did Hazlitt fall overboard uh, during the crossing? Not that crossing. The return on the return trip. Yeah, that's what uh, yeah Bill Welch uh, commented. He said he believed fell overboard on the way back to Pennsylvania. So. If I could just interject a related note, the the um, the question that I've uh, well I don't know that we'll ever get a definitive answer to is regarding Hazlitt's crossing on the uh, Christmas night, uh, where there some sources suggest that he and his men the Delaware Regiment, what was left of the Delaware Regiment at the time, crossed at the end, went over at three o'clock in the morning when the last, um, you know, remnants of the army got over to New Jersey. And, uh, but then there are conflicting accounts about that. Hazlitt, in the last letter, what was probably the last letter he ever wrote, said at Christmas, or I think something like on Christmas night, we recrossed the river at 3 a.m., but he doesn't specify whether he was referring to the whole army or to his own unit. I like to think that um, that he was talking about his own unit, that his men were part of the, the armies acting as part of the army's protective rear guard in that instance, because they did that on any number of occasions prior to that. Interesting. Um, and yeah, no, you know, I'm glad Larry also brought up the importance of artillery because I do pl think artillery plays a central role in the <coughs> victory of the actual battle. So I think I think the painting for all its uh, uh, inaccuracies and everything, and, and Roger mentioned Fisher's book has a whole chapter about it. Uh, I think I think for all its inaccuracies, I think it does sum up a lot of the the ideals of the cause and everything. Um, uh, but you know, in order for this uh, campaign to be successful, they would actually have to uh, seek a victory at Trenton. So in the actual combat at Trenton, uh, could you talk, Larry, I guess, a little bit about the artillery that, that at there uh, when the combat broke open at 8 a.m. on December 26th? Yeah. Well, Washington uh, crossed 18 artillery pieces. And you know that on the march to Trenton, he divided the army into two divisions, one under General Green and one under General Sullivan. And he put nine artillery pieces with each division. And each division was divided into, I believe, three uh, brigades. And each brigade had a couple of artillery pieces. It varied a little bit from one to another. I know Sergeant's Brigade, which uh, went with Sullivan, had three artillery pieces with it. I mentioned that because you mentioned my interest in Jacob Francis, the black, uh, free black American who was in the battle. He was in uh, Sergeant's uh, brigade and uh, came over. And again, th those guys were late getting over too. Sergeant's brigade didn't get over till after midnight uh, to the Pennsylvania, to the New Jersey side and then, then marched down. When they got to Trenton, the artillery is going to be extremely important, both with Green's division and with Sullivan's division. Uh, once Green's division had uh, worked through the uh, Hessian outposts on, on the outskirts of town and forced them back into town, he's going to set up artillery at the head of two streets that come together, uh, Queen Street and King Street. 
and the Hessians are going to be forming up in those streets. Uh, one thing that's uh, kind of a, a myth about uh, Trenton is that the Hessians were all living at the old barracks. They actually were none of them living at the old barracks. They were living in houses and buildings spread throughout town. So when the attack came, they had to you know, get out of their multitude of buildings and form up in the streets and try to try to figure out what to do. And while they're doing that, the artillery is sending cannonballs down, almost like a bowling alley down these streets um, at the Hessians. The Hessians only had six pieces of artillery uh, against the 18 of, of Washington. And several of those are going to get formed up in the streets to shoot back at Washington's artillery. And one of the first things that they're going to do is disable the Hessian artillery and eventually uh, go down and capture them. So, like you say, Mark, the artillery was extremely important. It, it was also important in the uh, Sullivan's division, uh, which came in uh, right about where the barracks is in the southern part of Trenton, and then went across and crossed over the Ass and Pink Creek to the Mill Hill area, and were firing artillery back at the Niefhausen Regiment, which uh, was the last regiment to, to surrender. And that Hessian regiment was unfortunate in its cannon. It had some one that didn't work and it got one that got stuck in the mud and couldn't be used. So the American artillery were really um, taking advantage in both of the uh, endpoint attacks on Trenton and bringing the, the Hessians to, uh, to surrender. So yeah, I think that's very quick, but <laughs> I think that shows that the, the importance of the artillery. And uh, you mentioned the, the free black man fighting in there. What, what uh, I guess, how many free blacks or African-Americans in general do we know were, were there? And I guess, how are you finding your research about this particular uh, free black man who you're, you're researching right now? Sorry. Just to get it. Yeah, it's, it's really a fabulous question and one that I wish I could answer in more detail. Uh, keep in mind that one of the problems uh, in this time period of the war, this is you know early in the war. Okay, there's going to be six and a half years after the Battle of Princeton, you know, that the war is going to go on, and the number of blacks and the organization of the regiments and that sort of thing is going to be different then than it was at the time of the battles of uh, Trenton and Princeton. Um, Jacob Francis, the young man that I mentioned, was actually born in New Jersey, but he was fighting in a Massachusetts regiment. He'd been indentured out by his free black mother at a young age, and he got his indentured freedom at age 21, which turned out to be in January of 1775. He was owned, his time as an indentured servant was owned by a number of men, and the last man to own him uh, lived in Salem, Massachusetts. And that's how he got to Massachusetts. He lived there for six years while the revolution was really building up uh, in the Boston area. And when he got his freedom and was figuring out what he's going to do with the rest of his life, um, he got involved with some British incursions into Salem uh, and was very interested in all the things that were happening. And he wanted to enlist in the Continental Army. 
Well, he enlisted on the 31st of October of 1775. So at the Battle of Trenton, he's been in the army for about 14 months. It's important to note that on the day that he enlisted is the very day that Washington in his general orders to his troops told his officers, don't enlist any blacks, free or slave. We don't want them. But somehow he got in anyway. Uh, Sergeant's regiment, you know, accepted him. By the end of December, two months later, Washington had changed his mind and decided that it was okay for blacks to be in the army, but he really only wanted ones that were already in. He didn't want to re keep recruiting new ones. I mention that because it's so hard to tell how many blacks were at the Battle of uh, Trenton. Most of the blacks were in New England regiments. New England was a lot more uh, close to abolition than uh, the middle colonies or uh, the southern colonies. New Jersey, by the way, is going to be very late on abolition and was really not for it during the time of the revolution at all. Um, but Jacob, um, you know, is in that regiment. I know that there's at least a couple of other men who were, were free blacks in that regiment. There certainly were in Connecticut regiments, Rhode Island regiments, um, New Hampshire regiments, but the exact number is, is really hard to tell. One regiment that we know had a significant number of blacks as well as Native Americans was the Marbleheaders, uh, Glover's regiment that did so much with the crossing uh, we were talking about the guys rowing the boats and, you know, and things like that. Um, they were a, a significant regiment in terms of uh, being recognized for the number of blacks that were there, as were, as was Rhode Island. But Massachusetts was in there as well as Connecticut. So, yes, there were definitely blacks who served at the Battle of Trenton. How many? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> and more research to be done for sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. I want to bring Roger in to talk a little bit about, so if people go visit Trenton today, what can they, what can they see to, to learn about the actual battle that happened there on the 26th? Well, the old Barracks Museum does a great job um, with <clears throat> not only their programming, but they, they also uh, have terrific staff of historical interpreters. They have some dioramas. Uh, they've got a little film. Um, the, um, but as Larry mentioned, of course, the barracks itself actually was of really tertiary um, importance to the battle itself. I mean, the battle occurred in what are today just urban streets. And, and it's a shame there are very few signs that are left. There is of course uh, the Trenton Battle Monument, um, which is at the head of what is today Warren and <clears throat> Broad Streets uh, in, in Trenton. And, um, and uh, it's, <laughs> It's not necessarily a, 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 a great um, section of, of Trenton, um, but you know it's certainly worth visiting. Uh, anytime we give our tours um, and we bring 
artillerymen up on to the head of what was then King and Queen Street. Um, the view that you, you get um, from the, where the artillery was placed, um, the, the, um, uh, these, these artillerists say, wow, what a, you know, what a great field of fire. This, this is the Trenton Battle Monument. This is me yesterday with all my SAR guys um, doing, um, you know, do, we did a, a reef laying up there. But um, when, you, when you look at uh, the tour, when you do the tour in Trenton, uh, you really have to be able to paint the picture of what it looked like um, in, um, in, in 1776. Um, in Larry, one of Larry's books, The Crossroads of the Revolution, which was really the biography of Trenton, uh, he's got some great maps in there in terms of explaining what the, what the city looks like. Uh, and in David's books, The Road to Assenpink Creek, he also pulls together really what the, the landscape of, of what Trenton looked like in the 18th century. So you really have to envision um, how this whole area was farmland leading into these two almost parallel streets uh, that went down to the river. Um, it's, but it's, you know, this is the trouble with many Revolutionary War battlefields uh, from Lexington and Concord um, all, all the way, you know, through the north. In the south, it's a little bit different. South, they have a little bit more open ground. But in the north, um, for example, with the, the New York campaign, the, um, it, it, there's nothing left. <laughs> I mean, much of the battle uh, in the New York campaign uh, happened in, um, in some of the cemeteries or in Pros what is today Prospect Park. We're in the middle of Brooklyn. Um, it's the same thing here in Trenton. There, there's, there's very little left. Uh, there's a few, uh, and, and, but that's why the old barracks museum does such a good job because once you enter the grounds of the old barracks museum, which is right in the middle of the city, um, you can sort of get that sense of, of the 18th century, you know, what 18th century life was like uh, and, his, and the interpreters do well. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And yeah, how many battlefields are now? Yeah, part of urban landscapes. Uh, but it's still, I always think, it, yeah, it's amazing to be on the, the actual ground where it happened. And we got a couple of questions uh, in, in the chat about uh, James Monroe and his participation in this battle. And of course, he's uh, depicted here in the uh, Washington painting, crossing in the same boat as Washington, which uh, didn't happen, but, you know, Washington or Monroe was uh, engaged in the battle and was wounded. Uh, and yeah, the site where, you know, right there on what was then King Street being wounded in the street there, of course, today isn't marked in any way as far as a wayside or a marker saying, you know, here, future president almost died. Uh, but, you know, it, you know, to still be in that same location is a pretty, pretty special thing. I think it's great that, yeah, Roger, your group is, is out there. And yeah, uh, Billy Griffith, one of our historians of the Emerging Revolutionary War, posted a video yesterday. So it's nice to see you guys had a, well a wreath there to, to remember uh, the, the battle that happened there yesterday. And 
you mentioned the old barracks. Yeah, I think they do a great job. I, you know, I said one of the things I really enjoy is the annual reenactment they do of the, the actual battle on the actual ground, uh, which is pretty cool uh, that they help. And I was talking to Larry before we started about how he helped, uh, he helps narrate for the past couple of years uh, that reenactment. Of course, this year, because of COVID, it, it, it's been, it was canceled, but uh, hopefully next year uh, uh, we'll have the, the reenactors back out there to recreate the actual battles on the, on the ground there in Trenton. Uh, and, you know, we, we even have somebody watching from Germany, uh, and uh, some people are, have some questions about, uh, you know, Rawl and his decision-making process as far as allowing his men to be taken surprise. Were there any attempts uh, to fortify uh, Trenton, and should he have done something different uh, that would have potentially saved his command from being totally overrun, and the age-old myth uh, you know, were these guys hopelessly drunk after celebrating Christmas Day? Um, Mark, you, you, you raised a question that I, that I had that I would like to, and I referenced it before, before we went on the air, that I'd really love to get everybody's opinion on. Um, and that relates to why Rawl did not, there are multiple schools of thought, I think, as to why he did not fortify Trenton, although he had been ordered to do so by his superior, um, Colonel uh, Carl von Donop, who was headquartered in Bordentown. And I gather there was no love loss between these two, but um, regardless of that, there's, you know, the one school of thought that um, they were all chose not to do that because of the layout of the town. And he just figured it wasn't, it wasn't practical because of how open the town was. There was no way, just wasn't feasible to fortify the town in any serious or systematic way. Uh, and then another factor, of course, may have been the um, his uh, given his his comments attributed to him, um, perhaps at that time justifiably um, contemptuous attitude towards the Americans and a feeling that you know Washington's army, based on the intel that the British spies were providing, uh, was in no position to launch any kind of serious offensive operation. But there's this other school of thought, and I've never seen anything that documents this, so, and I'm very skeptical about it, but I'd like to know what you guys think. That the reason Rawl did not uh, opt to fortify the town was that he didn't expect to be there that long because he had been supposedly authorized by General William Howe, the British commander, up in, then up in New York, to, as soon as the, the ice and the river froze over, to take his brigade, his three regiments, 1,500 men across the river and march down to Philadelphia and capture the American capital. Now, I'm skeptical about that for three reasons. One is that my understanding is that European armies normally didn't do that sort of thing during the winter months. Um, but even more importantly, that I find it hard to believe that General Howe would have, uh, well, first of all, that he would have said to Rawl, okay, fine, you can just take 1,500 men and go capture the American capital, which is you know, what he had, three regiments. Um, but I also, perhaps even more importantly than that, I find it difficult to believe that Howe would have given uh, a Hessian regiment the honor of capturing the rebel capital rather than a British unit. Um, and then of course, uh, on a more practical level, 
I think it would have been a challenge for the Hessians by themselves if they were to march down to Philadelphia and try to take the capital if they were being, you know, occupying the city led by a, a commander who I don't think understood a word of English. But I, I'd like to know what you guys think of that, that, um, that notion that, that Raw was just waiting to cross the river and, and uh, occupy Philadelphia. And, and that was why he chose not to uh, fortify Trenton. Larry, you want to speak to that? Yeah. I don't know if that was a belief that he had or a hope that he had. Uh, the Hessians were not happy in Trenton. The Hessians had been led to believe when they first uh, were assigned there earlier in December that it would be temporary, that they would, that the whole army, not just them, but the, the whole army would go on and, and take Philadelphia. And how originally when he was chasing Washington across New Jersey, his idea was to get all the way to Philadelphia. He didn't plan to, to stop and just occupy New Jersey. I think uh, in terms of why Rawl didn't uh, put up any defenses, um, you know, that's, that's part of it. But I think it goes a lot, lot uh, more complex than that too. You mentioned that he had orders from Von Donop to put a couple of redoubts, one in the north and one in the south part of Trenton. And he just basically blew that off, uh, didn't do it. Even when uh, Von Donop sent a, an engineer to scout things out and plot things out with him, he just never followed up on it. You mentioned that he didn't get along with Von Donop. Very true. <laughs> uh, he might have just disregarded the order out of you know his antagonism for Von Donop which also included that he wanted more troops from Von Donna. He wanted to be the boss. He didn't want to be subservient to Von Donna. And he kept asking uh, not only Von Donna, but uh, General Grant uh, of the British Army, uh, who was his superior, to re-divide the troops, uh, re you know, break the troops up differently so that um, Rawl had more of them. And that wasn't happening. So he was in a bad mood there too. But, uh, Raw also had a very low opinion of the, the American troops at this point. You know, Raw was in Trenton because he had done so well at places like White Plains and Fort Washington and all of that. He was in a position of honor in the, in the line of cantonments that the, the British had set up. And he was pretty sure of himself. At least one of, uh, of, of Rawls' uh, troopers, one of his Hessians in his diary basically said, and these are my words, not his, but, but the idea, he'd follow Rawl anywhere on the battlefield. He thought of him gr as a great commander on the battlefield, but he said, don't have him plan it. Don't have him be the, the guy that determines where the battle's gonna be, how it's gonna be fought. But once it gets started, you know, he'll carry it through and do a very good job. And I want to be with him when he does that. But they didn't have much respect for Rawl as a tactician or anything like that. So I think that was in it. I think also, you know, the, the myth that the Hessians were drunk and therefore they were surprised. They were not really surprised. I think that is a big myth that the Hessians were surprised at Trenton. The Hessians were very, very alert. Uh, 
the whole time they, they were at Trenton because the Americans kept sending harassing parties across the Delaware virtually every day for the two, two and a half weeks before the Battle of Trenton. We're talking 30, 40, 50 men at a time, um, you know, hit and run and then get back over to, to Pennsylvania. And also some New Jersey militia on the New Jersey side in the Hunterdon County area who would make attacks, harassing attacks on Hessian outposts, Hessian foraging parties, Hessian, Hessian messengers, things like that. So Rawl had it in his head that Washington could only do harassing attacks. You know, the condition of his army and everything else, he was in for a long winter of harassing attacks. So he had to have his men on guard. His men every third day had to sleep in their uniforms, all belted up and, you know, ready to turn out. Uh, and they were on duty every third day in order to be ready for uh, harassing attacks. Thank you. So I think that, um, you know, the Hessians were ready. But even, even the uh, von Wiederholt, the, the Hessian lieutenant who was in charge of the outpost that General Green ran into, his initial reaction in seeing the uh, troops come out of the uh, bad weather was this is another harassing attack. But then all of a sudden there were hundreds of them instead of a dozen of them, you know, and then he realized that they were, they were in trouble. I think, I think it's also worth uh, pointing out um, that we talked earlier about the massive amount of firepower in terms of artillery that the Americans had with them. Um, and that happened for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, Knox had convinced Washington that it was a hell of an idea because it, it would over, it would cause this shock and awe that, that, um, that would overpower the Hessians at the time he was convincing Washington, they didn't know the weather was going to be as bad as it was. So that that part of it was just pure pure dumb luck. But um, in t in terms of the surprise, um, it also turned out to be pure dumb luck that they had all of that uh, firepower because the weather was so bloody awful that night um, that it was going to be a lot harder to get the firearms, the muskets and the, and the flintlocks and, you know, all the weapons to, to work. But the cannon were, were going to be more effective in weather like that. But the point here is, is that in terms of the surprise itself, the weather was so bad that it was just madness to think that anyone would launch an attack when, when in the middle of a nor'easter. In, in the 18th century, when your flintlocks had, your muskets had to have dry powder, why would you launch an attack during that period of time? So that was, a, that was the other part of the surprise aspect of it. But it's also important to note that that night, every guard post was manned. All patrols had been sent out on a normal routine. Right. Some of them didn't go quite as far as they might have in, in better weather. But the Hessians were doing everything that they normally would do that night uh, as preparing for um, you know, some kind of an attack. They also, uh, one of the reasons for the surprise was that uh, about 50 Virginians Virginia. had crossed 
over the river, not knowing Washington was going to cross later in the day. And they did a harassing attack on Trenton about seven o'clock that night while Washington was crossing further up the river. And, you know, were repulsed as a harassing attack. And so the Hessians basically were in a position of saying, well, we've had our attack. Now the weather is really getting bad. As Roger said, they aren't going to do anything else. And then when I mentioned that in the morning when Wiederholt uh, saw the guys coming out of the weather, that was early enough in the morning. They were used to getting harassing attacks first thing in the morning. So that's another reason why they would look at this as just another harassing attack. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that the Hessians need to have more um, credit for being on the ball and being good troops and, and that kind of thing, and not just a bunch of partiers that got interrupted. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, well, they, they quickly made easy scapegoats, I think, uh, for a lot of people's agendas to quickly uh, throw them under the bus uh, in order to explain away this uh, uh, reversal of fortunes for the for the crown forces. Um, but uh, we're, we're getting late into the hour, so I don't know if we're going to be able to capture all of it. Now, I know uh, uh, David, one of his books, is about the second battle of Trenton. We only this so far. We've only gotten to the, through the first day of the the ten crucial days. Obviously, there's and you could spend hours and hours talking about all these different topics. But David, if you could just talk very briefly just about uh, I guess the second battle of Trenton, Washington. After the first battle, he captures these nine hundred Hessians, comes back over to Pennsylvania. He moves back over to New Jersey and settles down just south of the Assunpink Creek. Uh, and the British under G General Charles Cornwallis are going to come down and uh, make an attempt to try and crush Washington's force there. And I, th I think in your book, you, may you argue that this really was the, uh, the crucial moment for, uh, for the American army and the cause of the American independence. Uh, could you speak just a little briefly about the Second Battle of Trenton, the Battle of Assunpink Creek? Yeah, I don't necessarily expect anyone to... Uh to give great weight to my words, but I think uh, it's worthwhile noting that Nathaniel Philbrick in the middle of his middle volumes, um, Rev War Trilogy, calls this the most unappreciated moment of the American Revolution. And um, I guess the thesis of, of my book was that um, the events of that day, January 2nd, and I view it as a, as a day long running battle, to me the Battle of Assunpink Creek was the, um, you know, the fighting withdrawal by the Americans along the, uh, the Post Road or the Princeton-Trenton Road to try to slow up Cornwallis's advance uh, from Trenton to Princeton. And then the fighting in the, at the creek late in the day um, at, at sunset um, into which that fighting retreat segued and um, which was largely an exchange of cannon fire. You know, we were talking about the role of artillery in the first battle. I think it's worth noting that artillery played a, I think a very important role in all three battles to the Americans advantage. And that was part of Washington's plans. He deliberately wanted to go into each engagement with a uh, uh, marked superiority in artillery and he, and he did so. Uh, and it, and it, uh, it made a difference, I think. 
so um yeah the the battle of Aspen creek i think was largely ignored by historians for generations uh and still is to a certain extent today i think uh, I believe David Hackett Fisher was the, really the first one to give it its its due. And um, so I think it's so crucial because um, had the, well, had the British succeeded in getting to Trenton um, earlier than they did, which was Cornwallis's objective to get there by mid-afternoon, he's a good enough general that he was able to spot the means of outflanking Washington's army at one of the upper fords, Phillips, Phillips Ford, um, which was apparently passable that day. Um, and, you know, had he been able to do so, his army could, uh, at least in theory, have outflanked the Americans on their right and driven them up, up against the Delaware Riverbank. Henry Knox uh, alludes to this pretty explicitly, I think, in his correspondence with his wife, Lucy, a few days later. Um, had that occurred, I believe it would have meant the end, effectively the end of Washington's army. I don't know whether it would have meant the end of the revolution, but I think it would have effectively ended his, Washington, uh, his army and would have effectively ended Washington. I think he most likely would have died on the battlefield, or if he didn't, he would have had a close encounter of the worst kind with a British rope. But had things played out that way, Trenton won would have been a, you know, a historical footnote. It would have had no strategic significance. There would have been no Battle of Princeton the next day. Um, so I believe that makes Aston Pink not only the most pivotal moment of the 10 crucial days, but I think you can make a case it was the most pivotal moment of the Revolutionary War. And there are various aspects to that battle that distinguish it from the other two battles, Trenton won and, and Princeton, such as the fact that it was the only time during that period that they were fighting both a combined British and Hessian army, um, a larger army that was under a British general, Cornwallis, who was arguably the most um, proficient battlefield commander the British had, certainly the most aggressive. And it was the only one where Washington's army was fighting with, uh, well, essentially between two waterways. They had the creek in front of them, they had the river behind them. They had no significant number of boats to uh, affect a nautical evacuation. So they were um, really had their backs to the wall um, or the river as the case may be. And uh, of course that led to the remarkable story of their um, great escape to Princeton, which I think he had in mind all along. I don't think that that was something that just sprang, um, you know, came forth suddenly from the meeting he had, the council of war he had with his generals after the fighting in Aspen Creek. Um, but um, I just, I, I think that, uh, that the events of January 2nd were absolutely critical. It was, a, it was truly an existential, I don't think it's hyperbole to say it was an existential moment for Washington's army. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think when you look at the, the 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 decisions Washington had to make in that time period, uh, really do seem like crucial. And of course, as you mentioned, you know the events there are then going to lead to the next day, the Battle of Princeton, uh, and you can see that in the painting behind Roger there. Um, and I think the Battle of Princeton is also extremely critical. And often, I think both you know 
Roger mentioned that these are two different campaigns, uh, the first campaign and then the second campaign. The second campaign, I think, does often get short shrift compared to the other one. Uh, but I think Princeton is going to play a pivotal role, not only in the actual military campaign, uh, but also, I think, in the, uh, uh, the career of George Washington and uh, basically his um, role uh, in, the, in the revolution. I think his uh, personal bravery on the battlefield there played a big role in uh, his men sticking by him through some of the, what would be the even further uh, difficult times that the Continental Army is going to go through, uh, for sure. Mark, if I, if I could just punctuate something um, here, what I'd like to be able to do is to show you just a, a, a couple, just a couple of, uh, of, of maps here uh, so that people can get an idea of the significance of the, the 10 crucial days. Um, essentially, before the 10 crucial days, uh, what we were looking at is a um, occupied Jersey. I mean, here, here's the map of New Jersey, and you've got all of these, all of these towns essentially is what you had in Jersey. And before the 10 crucial days, all of the Jerseys were occupied. After the 10 crucial days, the British were pushed back to Staten Island, Manhattan, and Long Island, and along the Raritan to Brunswick. But the rest of this whole area were, were, were retaken by Washington and the troops. So essentially, uh, that's the significance of the 10 crucial days. Before the 10 crucial days, you had an entire colony was occupied. And after the 10 crucial days, the, 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 New, the Jerseys were never occupied again throughout the entire war. So that, that's what's, what's critical to understand about the two campaigns. Yeah, now I think, uh... You know, one of my favorite quotes is, yeah, from a British historian, he said, never in the history of the world had so few men in such a short amount of time had larger impacts on the history of the world. Um, and I think, I think a lot of the significance of the 10 crucial days comes from uh, just really how dire a situation Washington and the Continental Army were in uh, uh, just before Washington crossed the Delaware in the first campaign. So um yeah no i think i think when it comes to a place of or a, a subject to study or to learn more about i think this makes a good argument for why these battles are really significant to understand uh in a much deeper way uh for sure um but yeah we're getting close to the, to the end here uh does uh larry or david have any final thoughts on the uh the significance of the the 10 crucial days campaign well, it also probably changed the whole public image of Washington, uh, certainly for many people. You know, prior to this, he was, um, I think, a growing number of people, including some of his own officers and some members of the Congress, were suggesting that he was a pretty inept, indecisive leader, because he had been. But then, uh, you know, all of a sudden now he's a he's a military genius and a national hero. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I think that it's also important to note that it wasn't just the Continental Army that was in bad shape before the 10 crucial days. It was really the whole revolution. And particularly in New Jersey, being occupied, as Roger pointed out, you know, loyalists in New Jersey felt empowered. They had been run roughshod by the Patriots when after the Declaration of Independence and a new state government and all of that. Now, the loyalists feel they can take it back again and get revenge for the you know, treatment that they'd received. On the other hand, the Patriots who had uh, felt that they were in charge also felt that they'd been abandoned by the Continental Congress as well as the Continental Army. And you know, with the British occupation, there was no real hope for them. The, the brand new New Jersey government, uh, less than six months old, virtually disintegrated in December. Uh, nobody knew where the governor was. And the legislatures had, legislators had either uh, gone to safer parts of the state or out of the state entirely so that it was just not a functioning government anymore. And by the end of the 10 crucial days, New Jersey was able to get back together again uh, under a patriot government. And now it's the loyalists who feel abandoned by the British and the patriots who feel supported again. So, and, and again, six and a half more years of, of war before the, the thing is over rather than ending right around January of 1777. And Mark, you mentioned the, the, the quote by George Otto Trevelyan, another Englishman, George Germain, perhaps said it um, even more succinctly and although not quite as eloquently in his comments to parliament two and a half years later. And I quote, all our hopes were blasted by that unhappy affair at Trenton. Yep, which you can see there on the, uh, that's immortalized on the Trenton Battle Monument uh, down there, downtown Trenton, so. Uh, but I think Roger had one more thing he wanted to, to share with us. Yeah, I just wanted to, um, we, at our website, 10crucialdays.org, uh, we have this recommended book list. So you can go to 10crucialdays.org and there's a tab up there that just says about and then read and you'll see these are all of the books that you're to learn more about the 10 crucial days. I have them separated here, books specifically about the 10 crucial days and some supplementary books and then a few more. And here's books for young readers, which is, which is also terrific. So, um, and you can get, get these books anywhere. I have a little buy buttons here. You can get them here. You can get them at the gift shops at, the old barracks or at Washington Crossing or anywhere that books are sold. I mean, you know, you get them online and um, there's Mark's book, there's Larry and uh, Larry and uh, David's books. And um, I also just wanted to let everybody know that uh, Patrick K. O'Donnell is coming out with a book this year on the 14th Massachusetts, the Marblehead uh, Glover's Marbleheaders, uh, which I've just read. I read it on Christmas Day. It's really terrific, fantastic book. And that's coming out in May. So, excellent. Yeah, no, I think there's obviously, you know, we could, like we mentioned, you could go on for hours about all this campaign. There's plenty to, to research and study. So, we definitely recommend everybody 
yeah, go to 10crucialdays.org, check out their book list. Uh, there's a lot of good resources on there. Um, but yeah, no, uh, we just really want to thank uh, all three of you for coming on here with the Merging Revolutionary War. And uh, yeah, hopefully once uh, COVID's over, people are able to, to travel again and be able to go visit some of these sites, go to Washington's Crossing. We're trying to do a, 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 a tour as well of uh, uh, Trenton and Princeton next November. Um, and just try to get yeah, people to get to the sites, learn about the history, learn about the, uh, uh, the importance of these events that happened. Um, but thank you all for uh, uh, tuning in tonight. Um, and uh, we will see you all in, I think two more weeks will be our next uh, uh, discussion we'll do here on Emerging Revolutionary War. But thank you gentlemen for joining us tonight. Thank, thank you. you.